Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Neto Chimani. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the hour, South Africa's former president apologizes for controversial apartheid statement and efforts to disuse diffuse tension between Uganda and Rwanda continue in economics news IMF urges Botswana to fast track new growth model and in sports news the women's T20 World Cup begins in Australia but first up the news with Anne Musa SABC news independent and impartial from an african perspective a very good morning to you i'm Anne musa a total of 18 people suspected to be linked to a spate of gas attacks in zambia have been killed by mob justice at the weekend according to state owned times of zambia newspaper different parts of zambia have over the last 2 months been grappling with mysterious gas attacks by unknown criminals the perpetrators have been targeting homes and schools spraying their victims with a gas that leaves them unconscious president edgar lungu last week declared that the country was under siege and offered a reward of 17000 us dollars for information leading to the arrest of culprits Officials in Nigeria say 20 people, many of them women and children, have been killed in a stampede. 10 others were injured. Medical sources say the stampede took place during the distribution of food and money to displaced people in Defar in southern Nigeria. The BBC's Ishak Khalid reports. Witnesses say early on Monday a large crowd of refugees from Nigeria gathered at a facility in the town of Defar in southern Nigeria where they were due to receive humanitarian aid including food and clothes. When the gates of the facility were opened, people rushed to get in, causing a stampede which left at least 20 people dead. Officials say there are currently more than 120,000 Nigerians who have sought refuge over the border in Niger, most of them from Bono State, the epicenter of the decade-long Boko Haram conflict. The Constitutional Court in South Africa will this morning hear the opposition EFF's challenge to the Riotous Assemblies Act. This after a full bench of the High Court in the capital Pretoria earlier found that only part of the act was unconstitutional. The party instituted the court bid after its leader Julius Malema was charged for allegedly violating that act twice when he ordered his supporters to occupy land in KwaZulu-Natal and in Bloemfontein. Malema argued that it criminalized this constitutional right to freedom of expression normalizo mandela hasmo the eff and its leader julius malema have accused the government of using apartheid era legislation to silence and stop him from fighting for the landless they want the constitutional court to confirm the north houting high court's decision declaring that parts of the righteous assembly's act were unconstitutional and invalid for punishing the inciter of a crime with the same sanctions as the perpetrators of the incited crime they also have applied for the direct leave to appeal the high court's refusal to declare other provisions of the act unconstitutional 
as they unjustifiably infringe on the Constitution's rights of freedom of expression. The matter will be heard this morning. The South African Human Rights Commission has welcomed the Cape High Court's decision that the foreign nationals camping outside the Central Methodist Church in Cape Town should be removed. The more than 600 foreign nationals have been staying at the church since they were removed from the pavement in front of the UN High Commission for Refugees in Cape Town last year. Some of them were cooking, sleeping and washing on Green Market Square outside the church. The Human Rights Commission's Chris Nissan. The idea was that they wanted the United Nations High Commission of Refugees to force them to take them to Canada, which is completely impossible and illegal. And they've been told over and over again that you can't do that. It's only individual resettlement that can take place. Secondly, most of those refugees sitting there have got houses. It is opportunistic by the leaders to call people together with the hope of taking them to Canada. And finally, police in Rwanda say a singer who was arrested last week while trying to leave the country illegally has killed himself while whilst in custody. Police say Kizito Mihigo had been trying to get to Burundi to join a rebel group. The singer had spent three years in prison after he was accused of plotting against the government. The BBC's World Ross reports. Activists in the diaspora have dismissed the statement from the Rwandan police. They say Kizito Mahiga had no intention of joining rebels in Burundi, but wanted to get to Belgium, where he'd lived before. They also don't believe he killed himself in the police cell and think he was murdered. Kizito's music was the source of his troubles. In one song, he suggested everyone killed during the 1994 genocide should be remembered, whether they were Hutu or Tutsi. The authorities saw this as openly challenging the official narrative that it was a genocide of the Tutsis. Government critics believe because of this, Kazito was targeted. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. The FW de Klerk Foundation in South Africa has withdrawn its statement that apartheid was not a crime against humanity. Various political parties, NGOs and members of the public called on the foundation and the last apartheid president, F.W. de Klerk, to withdraw the statement. Some have suggested that de Klerk be stripped of the Nobel Peace Prize. Abongile Dumako has more. But there's a difference between calling something a crime, like genocide is a crime. Apartheid cannot be, that's why I'm saying this, cannot be, for instance, compared with genocide. There was never genocide. But there was a mass killing of people. Under apartheid, there were, many people died, yes. Mass imprisonment of people. But more more people died because of black-on-black violence than because of apartheid. An interview with the SABC days before the president, Cyril Ramaphosa Sona, Former President F.W. Declerc said apartheid was not a crime against humanity. 
This as the country was commemorating the 30th anniversary since the release of the late first democratically elected president Nelson Mandela. Days later at the SONA, the EFF demanded that the clerk be removed from the House. Honorable Speaker, we have a, a murderer in the House. We have a, a man who's got blood of innocent people in this House, which is supposed to represent the wills of our people. And therefore, it is incorrect for you to have extended an invitation to the clerk. Because the clerk is a murderer. The clerk has got blood on his hands. The people of Guipatung are turning in their graves. And the clerk said that crime was, you, apartheid was not crime against humanity. It even led to calls that the clerk must be stripped off the Nobel Peace Prize. Here is advocate Dalim Pofu, former national chairperson of the EFF. The value of that prize in his hand is uh, meaningless to the extent that he might even want to return it himself. The point I'm making is very simple. By making these provocative statements, the clerk is actually perpetrating violence because apartheid is nothing but brutality and violence. So if you support apartheid, you are supporting violence. So how can the same man with the one hand be perpetrating violence and then with the other hand be holding the Nobel Peace Prize? It's a contradiction. If he wants to uh, propagate apartheid, fine, let him do it, but he mustn't do it as a Nobel Peace Prize uh, laureate. The ANC says the clerk can't continue to enjoy presidential perks if he continues to conduct himself in the manner that he did. Pulemabe is the ANC's national spokesperson. It cannot be that uh, Mr. FW the clerk believes in his own mind that he can continue to enjoy the privileges of being a former leader of the republic when he carries himself in that irresponsible manner. You know, th there's a saying uh, that says, sticks and stones hurt. Weights don't. But if you use weights in an irresponsible manner, you can effectively spark chaos. Now, chairperson of the FWU Clerk Foundation Board of Advisors, Dr. Tinas Ilov says the statement made by former President F.W. Tilkirk that apartheid was not a crime against humanity was an error of judgment. Tilkirk has retracted and apologized for his statement, which was released on Friday after the EFF demanded that he left Parliament, where he was attending the State of the Nation address. It was widely criticized. Ilov says the foundation has since apologized to the country for the confusion, anger and hurt it has caused. There was a big public outcry about that, quite rightly so. And after some internal discussions on the board of the foundation, it was decided that the foundation and Mr. Clark agreed that that statement should be withdrawn unconditionally. And as is now known, uh, we also apologize for the pain and confusion it may, it may have caused. It was an error of judgment, we believe. The Democratic Alliance, through its Federal Council Chair Helen Zille, declined to comment on the views of the last apartheid president, Aimabongile Dumago, in Johannesburg. Rules governing the awarding of Nobel Prizes have poured cold water on efforts to have the joint awarding of the Peace Prize to former apartheid-era President F.W. de Klerk withdrawn. Various groups and parties, including the economic freedom fighters in South Africa, have made calls for the Nobel Committee to revoke the prize after comments by de Klerk saying he did not believe apartheid was a crime against humanity. Shown Bryce Peace has more from New York.
Paragraph 10 of the Nobel Foundation statutes are clear. No appeals may be made against the decision of a prize-awarding body with regard to the award of a prize, meaning options to seek the revocation of the de Klerk award are slim to none. It states further that should divergent opinions be expressed concerning the award of a prize, this may not be included in the record or otherwise divulged. In addition, the Rome Statute, which establishes the International Criminal Court, names the crime of apartheid as among the list of crimes against humanity in Article 7, but Article 11 says the court has jurisdiction only with respect to crimes committed after the entry into force of the statute, which happened only in July of 2002. South Africa as a state's party acceded to the statute in November 2000, years after the official policy of apartheid had ended. Sherman Bricepies, SABC News, New York. Former South Africa Security Branch Police Officer Nicholas Dietliffs has confessed that they covered up the assaults and torture of detainees at the then John Foster Square Police Station in Johannesburg. Dietliffs has been testifying at the inquest into the death of anti-apartheid activist Neil Agat in the High Court in Johannesburg. Agat was found hanging in his cell on the 5th of February 1982. His family rejects the security branch claim that he committed suicide. Wisani Makubele reports. Nicholas Dietliefs started working for the security branch in 1979. His office was on the 10th floor at the then John Foster Square Police Station. He confirmed that he interrogated Neil Agat about a week before he died. He told the court that Agat looked relaxed when he questioned him about the ANC, communism and terrorism. Dietliefs, however, believed Agat was suicidal, saying he had told him he felt bad about revealing certain information about one of his comrades. Dietliefs also said that he never used violence to get information out of a detainee. During cross-examination by Agat family lawyer Howard Vani, Dietliefs considered that he collaborated with other members of the security branch in covering up the assaults and torture. That's correct, That is correct, my lord. And Mr. Dietliefs, in admitting that, you're also aware that you were committing a crime each time you covered up? Yeah, as a man said, the word routine break, that was a basis for an handle for Yes, uh, my lord, it was the way of handling things. So I must be corrected that the evidence of the security branch must always be taken with a, a great deal of circumspect if cover-ups were the order of the day? Yeah, that is correct, yes. However, Dietliefs further told the court that he never witnessed anyone being electrocuted and had never seen any assault taking place, but he did hear people screaming on the 10th floor. Vani is not convinced by Dietliefs' assertion. You know, Mr. Dietlifs, I must put it to you that on your own version, on the evidence that you have given to this court this afternoon, we will be submitting that you have given false evidence. On the probabilities of what you have alleged before this court, that the electric shock treatment was so common, it was happening all the time, it was a, a general thing in your words. This correct, We will be submitting that your evidence, that you never witnessed this, and that you simply cannot tell the court uh, who was involved in this electric shock treatment is false. My Lord, I'm going, I'm going to differ uh, much with the advocate. There was no false testimony. 
Another anti-apartheid activist, former Deputy International Relations Minister Ibrahim Ibrahim, was also in court. He says although he was detained at John Foster Square in 1986, he was interrogated by Diet Leaves. Ibrahim says Diet Leaves kept threatening him that if he didn't talk, he was going to be tortured. At one stage that he told me that he's not going to assault me, but he's going to put me through something. If I survive it, he will be convinced that I'm not a human being. As a result, they put me in a very tiny cell covered with dress pack and the ceiling was covered with, with thick cardboards, thick boards, and then they bombarded me with noise for 24 hours, day and night, until I became destabilized and my nerves cracked. The inquest continues with dead leaves on the witness stand. I'm Wissani Makubele in Johannesburg. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Ona and Tabile Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One, hashtag Vision 2030. After being booed in Guazulu Natal in 2006 for following political tensions with his then-fired deputy Jacob Zuma, the province is warming up to former South Africa's President Tabombeki. In less than six months, he has been invited twice by the ANC in the province. Last year, he was invited to address the memorial lecture of the late Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe. And this past weekend, he addressed the ANC political school at the weekend. Ndeba Mugobo looks at Mbeki's relations with the province, once hostile to him. After losing the ANC presidency to his deputy Jacob Zuma in 2007, Mbeki was later ousted as the country's president in 2008. He was then accused of leading a political conspiracy to charge Zuma for corruption in the arms deal. And this ANC internal politics played themselves out in 2006 at the reburial of ANC struggle hero Moses Mapid and Peter Marisbeck. Thousands of party members booed Mbeki and walked out during the course of his speech. Others bent placards and t-shirts bearing Beggy's face. But Zuma tried hard and without success to calm them down. Comrades, Logan Shalepans, Comrade President is speaking. Feeling sidelined, it took Mbeki almost a decade to start actively engaging in ANC politics. Only ahead of the 2019 elections, Mbeki handed Cyril Ramaphosa a huge PR boost by throwing his weight behind his presidency. He explained why he feels he can now tell voters to back the ANC. The fact that we admit that we veered, of course, and resulting in corruption, this and that and the other, it means we are making a commitment to the public that we are going to have to deal with those matters. Oh, Mbeki was scathing on the Zuma administration, saying there was no good story to tell. For many years, we have had a different approach to this issue which was people saying we've got a good story to tell. As they were busy hearing, of course, they were saying we've got a good story to tell. 
So you say, why now? Why do I do this? It's because there was a period when uh, I could not personally, in all honesty, uh, come and say to a person, David, please vote for the ANC, knowing very well the wrong things that were happening. And is now more than welcome back in KwaZulu-Natal, the province previously hostile to him. He addressed the Robert Mugabe Memorial Lecture in September last year, and he was back in the province at the weekend for the ANC political school, reflecting on what is happening in both ANC and government. I'm hoping that the government will pay all the necessary attention to the details about all of these matters. Because they are very serious challenges in terms of ESCOM. I don't know what the government is thinking about what it's going to do with this very, very big debt that ESCOM has. It's got to be addressed. The matter about SAA, I think we should wait and see what this uh, business rescue team will say in terms of what it proposes. Political analyst Dr. Ralph Mateja says this is good news for the ANC. It actually means that they have now access to one of the brains within the party, one of the greatest thinkers within the party. I don't know whether does this come out of his realization that the party needs him. And it's very, very interesting for him to be in KZN. I hope and wish that as part of his political education, the bigger part of the syllabus is also about political unity. Perhaps maybe he thought that's a place to start. And as Tabombek is now fully back in the ANC, there is a hope that this could heal divisions of the past and bring back the much-needed unity in the party tone along factional lines. I am Tebumokobo in Johannesburg. The ad hoc commission formed to de-escalate tension between Rwanda and Uganda has recommended that Rwanda reopens its border. This was during a meeting of the commission in the Rwandan capital, Kigali, where the delegations from Uganda and Rwanda also agreed that both countries should respect the human rights of its nationals. The recommendation, according to the joint statement, has been forwarded for consideration in a meeting between Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni and his Rwandan counterparts, Paul Kagame on Friday. Silvanus Karamera has more from Kigali. The Gatuna presidential meeting will be attended by facilitators president of the DRC, Felix Sakedi, and Angolan president, Joao Lolanso. The meeting was decided by the heads of state in the last meeting in Rwanda, Angola. Before they meet, their foreign affairs minister first met in Kigali over the weekend in a long day closed session meeting, but before they locked themselves up, they made some counter-accusations in their opening speeches. Rwanda's state minister in charge of the East African community, Olivier Hunjrehe, provided what he called undeniable evidences of how Uganda supports armed groups that aim at stabilizing Rwanda. Uganda's support to armed groups and, and individuals has continued unabated. I will give you a few examples. First, the leadership of the RNC terrorist organization working under the cover of Self-Worth Initiative NGO of Sula Nwamanya and Posi Bonabana continue to conduct mobilization activities under the facilitation of the CMI, the Chieftaincy of Military Intelligence, notably Kano Sike Asinwe, Deputy Head of CMI and Director of the Joint Anti-Terror Unit. After the ad hoc commission meeting held on 13th September 2019 in Munyonyo, the outcomes were reported verbatim by Sulan Wamenya and Prosi Bonabana in the social media, an indication of a close collaboration between RNC and the government of Uganda. 
Charlotte Mukamusi, Commissioner in Charge of Diplomacy in the RNC Terrorist Organization, visited against Uganda in January 2020, last month, on RNC mission to meet top officials of the government of Uganda. For the last three years, the neighboring countries have been accusing each other, but Rwanda has heavily accused Uganda of harboring and supporting and armed groups that have on several occasions attacked Rwanda from the DRC and sneaked into Uganda, as well as random arrests targeting Rwandans in Uganda. The Ugandan Minister for Foreign Affairs, Sam Kutesa, made this allegation against Rwanda for the first time. I urge Rwanda to demonstrate the same spirit and raise the concerns regarding the over 50 Ugandan detainees in Rwanda. The list of Ugandans known to be in detention have been provided to Rwanda government. On the issue of deportations, I wish to reiterate the, that deportations from Uganda are done in compliance with the law. Speaking during the national retreat that is ongoing in the eastern part of Rwanda, President Paul Hagame touched on the issue with different views. Even if Ugandans have been asking us to open a border, but in actual sense, they are the ones closed it. Because if Rwandans crossing border to Uganda are being detained and tortured and finally killed, we reach the point of telling Rwandans that we as a government are not able to decide how you get treated in Uganda. I have personally traveled to Uganda several times. I have spoken to the authority in Uganda and have reached the point of saying, you know what, you have got to decide whatever you do to Rwandans coming to Uganda. It is not clear yet what will come up in this week's meeting in Gatuna and why the two leaders decided the meeting be held at the border of the two countries. Silvanus Kalemera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. The Cape Town High Court in South Africa has granted the city of Cape Town an interim interdict to remove a group of foreign nationals living on the street outside the Central Methodist Church in Green Market Square. Acting Judge Daniel Tulare has ruled that the city has the right to uphold its bylaws. The city applied for an interdict last year after more than 600 foreign nationals moved into the church. Many are, however, sleeping, cooking and defecating outside the church. Acting Judge Daniel Tulare ruled that the city has seven days to execute the order and that it must be read in languages understandable to the group. Chris Mabuya reports. In his summary, Acting Judge Daniel Tulare says the group of foreign nationals have to show that factors do exist 
to compel them not to return to their original residence and the city may request clarity and verify such information. The judge says the city has an obligation to assist the group in this regard. He, however, ruled that the city has a duty and right to enforce compliance with its bylaws, not only in its own interest, but also in the interest of the community. The respondents are engaged in contraventions of the law in public spaces, which the city is custodian of. The affected area has been rendered ungovernable a no-go area which cannot be countenanced. The city cannot sanction deliberate illegality where it has a duty to its inhabitants and visitors. The judge also says the demands of the foreign nationals are unreasonable. He says the court cannot advance conduct which makes it impossible for the city to govern its territory. What is clear to me is that unless the court intervenes, the conduct of the respondents, which has no regard for authority, the rights of others, and the law, will continue indefinitely. The city has satisfied me of the facts necessary for its right to be protected in this application. After having considered the attitude and response of the city, in respect of its obligations towards the rights of the respondents as human beings, in my opinion, there is a need to set out terms which safeguards some of the respondents. The group has until the 17th of next month to state why the interim order cannot be made final. One of the leaders, J.P. Balus, says they will try to appeal, but they have no hope of winning. We're just doing this in order to uh, fulfill the formalities, but we knew very well that there was not going to be anything in favor of refugees. I've never seen a single refugee or single refugee giving they write when they face each other with the South African. I have nine to ten years working in the Justice Department, and that's the reason why it pulled me out to be angry about the treatment that refugees are going through in South Africa. The city of Cape Town was not immediately available for comment. I'm Chris Mabuya in Cape Town. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the EGAD Special Envoy for South Sudan, Ishmael Waiz, has welcomed the recent decision of the government of South Sudan to revert back to 10 states. A total of 18 people suspected to be linked to a spate of gas attacks in Zambia have been killed by mob justice. And the Constitutional Court in South Africa will this morning hear the opposition EFF's challenge to the Riotous Assemblies Act. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Sarah's mother died on her fifth birthday with injuries sustained in a bomb attack. The work of an Indonesian militant group, also responsible for the Bali bombing in 2002 that killed more than 200 people. Now 17, Sarah is going into the country's highest security prison to meet two of the bombers who are on death row. As part of Indonesia's unique de-radicalization program, the government facilitates such meetings and attempt to change hearts and minds and stop future attacks. The BBC's Asia editor 
Rebecca Henschke gained unprecedented access to go with Sarah. Just getting a security check yes. before we go into the jail. Yeah. Excuse me, yeah, sure. How are you feeling, Sarah? <laughs> My heart's racing, Sarah says, and she wants to ask one question. Why did he do it? Sarah's mother was on the back of her husband Iwan's motorbike, passing the Australian embassy in Jakarta, when a car bomb exploded. Iwan, who lost his eye and the love of his life, was at first filled with a desire for revenge. I wanted them to die, but I didn't want them to die quickly. I wanted to see them tortured first, so that they had some idea of the pain their bomb caused. But now, along with his children, he's about to meet the man found guilty of planning the attack, Royce. Royce is waiting for Iwan. He's sitting in a wheelchair dressed in a red prison uniform. His hands and his legs are handcuffed. He's had a stroke recently. My children want to meet the person who injured their father and killed their mother, he says gently. Sarah manages to ask, why did you do it? I couldn't refuse. Maybe when you are older you will understand what it's like. I hope you can be patient and that we can pray for each other. Disappointed and hurt, they head quietly to the next jail to meet Ahmad Hussain. Images of him during the trial showed a defiant man raising his fists and staring angrily at the camera. But he's a very different man today. I never wanted to hurt your father, he tells Sara and Risky. I'm a greatly flawed human. Sarah finds it easier here to ask her question. My friends and I were given the wrong education and learning. I wish that my friends and I didn't act before we had really gained knowledge and understood what we were doing. Sara looks at her hands and then tells her story. I would always ask my dad when I was little, where is my mom? And he would answer that she was in Allah's house. I said, where is Allah's house? And he said, the mosque. So I ran away and went to the mosque. When they found me, I said, I'm waiting for mom. I was waiting and hoping for my mom to come home. But she has never come home. After Sarah has told this story, Hassan's face clearly is in pain. He closes his eyes and he opens his hands to the sky as if in prayer. There's a long silence before he speaks again. I'm sorry. I can't hold back my tears. I take Sarah like my own child. Please, please forgive me. 
At the end of the meeting, they've come together and are taking photos. Hassan has taken Risky's hand and is holding it. Do you believe him when he said, I'm sorry? Yeah, bisa. Yes, she says with a huge smile. I'm smiling now because the questions that I have asked over and over in my heart for years, it's been answered today. So I feel a wave of relief. That report by the BBC's Rebecca Henschke in Indonesia's capital, Jakarta. South Africa's Western Cape province will soon have a children's commissioner whose role will be to investigate, lobby and report on minors and their best interests. The final stage for the selection of the country's first ever commissioner for children will begin this week. A number of non-governmental organizations and members of the public have participated in the extensive process. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Patrick Solomons, director of the Child Rights NGO Molo Songololo. Patrick, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Hello, good morning to you and to your listeners and thanks for having me. Now, Patrick, what prompts the appointment of a children's commissioner in the Western Cape? Well, and the provincial constitution um, makes provision for the establishment of um, a commissioner for children. So there's a constitutional obligation to set a task. So, um, yeah, so after many, many years of advocacy for this to happen, we eventually are now um, at the process where the commissioner is um, um, in the process of being appointed. First, we had to, uh, had to of course, uh, because the, the Constitution made provision for the uh, policy to be developed for the appointment, and that meant basically that first step um, was to set in place um, that policy. So the act was now created and came into effect last year, and um, and now the parliament is busy uh, with the final stages of the appointment process. Now, with the final stages of the appointment process, tell us more about the roles that the commissioners will be expected to fulfil, and for the benefit of the children, obviously. Yes, um, what we have now... Um, uh, based on international good practice around child rights, um, a commissioner for children, an ombudsperson or a child protector is seen as part of the child rights framework. So many countries have now established what they refer to as um, commissioners for children. So South Africa has been lagging behind in this regard. And it's a full-time person who can uh, um, put full-time attention onto the implementation of child rights. So it's the person like a watchdog overlooking the interests of children and how government is performing to implement the rights of the child. So an ombudsperson's main role is basically to, 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 to um, advocate children's rights, promote children's rights, and to keep an eye on um, how government is doing to implement children's rights. Such a person uh, an office can um, also, of course, receive complaints, um, as in this particular case, and also investigate complaints or even start um, investigations around certain concerns that they might be concerning the care, the safety and protection of children. The uh, Commissioner for Children, of course, will be accountable to Parliament. 
And so it will basically operate almost similar to what we have now already. The Chapter 9 institutions, like the Human Rights Commission commissioners, they're all accountable to Parliament, they act independently, but they have a specific job, and that job is to promote human rights. And in this case, the Commissioner for Children has to promote the rights of children, will have to be able to identify um, gaps that is there and alert government and make recommendations and also be able to investigate um, situations where children's rights are being violated, whether it is government departments, government officials, government um, workers, or in civil society. They um, then do have the powers also to um, hold them to account. If government officials, um, if departments or in, um, members of the public failed to respond to the recommendations of the commissioner, failed to cooperate with the commissioner. The commissioner then also have the power to institute sanctions against them. So there's things like fines or even imprisonment can happen um, if they fail to cooperate, fail if they ignore, and there's um, any um, reason, uh, and there's no reason for them not to um, adhere to the commissioner. So that is um, something that we have a bit different to the human rights commissioners, because they don't have that kind of power. So in the Western Cape, for example, we, if we establish this, this commissioner will be, be leading um, in terms of a full-time person and a full-time office specifically set up to monitor children's rights, to protect children's rights, and to monitor and report on government's progress to implement the rights of the child. Now, in terms of the selection process and uh, as a rights group, um, have you been satisfied so far on how the process is unfolding? Well, one of the um, challenges that we've had, of course, is that um, the, uh, with regard to the nomination process, a public and uh, um, NGOs and children can make nominations uh, to um, then there's an objection process that people can op- uh, then object to to any person they feel is not suitable. And then there's a third process of shortlisting, and then the interviews happen, and then the final selection happens. So the, the Western Cape Constitution and the Act for the Western Cape Commissioner for Children is um, based, uh, it's clear with regard to the first two posts of uh, the nominations and the objections, and specifically say that uh, the public can participate in those processes. But it's silent on the, the other processes. So, that we, so we've called, for example, that the um, representatives of public and children should be invited to be part of, of the interview panel and the selection panel. Um, of course, uh, uh, we haven't been able, been successful on that, but we are, I've encouraged members of the public to to um, attend the, 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 the interviews, and, and we've had NGOs um, at yesterday's session. The sessions will continue today and tomorrow. I'll be calling again on NGOs to, to participate in, in that process. And um, so um, this is the first time we're going through something like this in the Western Cape. So we're also learning um, in terms of this process. But one of the concerns that NGOs already have is that there isn't sufficient effort done by the Parliament to ensure that the public can participate. 
just putting an advert in the newspapers, uh, putting it on pe- uh, people's website. Not many people, not many NGOs, not many public re- um, organizations are aware of this process. And therefore, uh, one needs to do a little bit much more. Children themselves, who have a right to participate, are also not informed. Parliament don't have a mechanism and a strategy whereby they can inform children. So that is some of the concerns that we have. So we still believe that we could have done better and we should be able to do, to do better uh, to include uh, the public participation process throughout the appointment process of the, the commissioner. Now, Patrick, very quickly, we have run out of time, but when can the appointment be expected? Well, what happens now is that uh, once the uh, Parliamentary Committee on Social Development concludes the interviews, they will then uh, uh, deliberate and they will then assess who is then best suited and who their choice is. They then have to then submit that to the Premier um, of the Western Cape. The Premier of the Western Cape will then look at that. If the Premier is fine with their decision, and the Premier will then endorse it, then it will go back to Parliament for final endorsement, and then the... And then the the, the commissioner will then be instated. If the premier is not happy because the premier might feel that the process has been sold for one or other reason, mm-hmm. or there's objection from public and pressure from public, and they're not maybe not happy with the process so far, then the premier can send um, back to the committee that the premier is not happy and it must state the reasons why that is so. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Unfortunately, Patrick, I have to cut you off there. We have run out of time. But uh, all the best for this process. And hopefully the next time we chat to you, we'll know who um, the commissioner is in the Western Cape. All the best. And thanks a lot for the opportunity. Thanks, Patrick. That's Patrick Solomons, director of Molo Songololo, a child rights group based in South Africa, joining us on the line. It is 7.46 and our economics update up next with Tabu Soluhoko. A very good morning. The Zimbabwean government has streamlined the sizes of all individual farms in the country's ecological regions in a move that will see more people having access to land. The reduction in farm sizes will also boost capacity utilization of land following concerns that some farms were unnecessarily big and underutilized. Government compulsory acquired over 12 million hectares of arable land previously occupied by white farmers, resulting in some black beneficiaries getting a vast swath, rather swaths of land they cannot put to effective use. Meanwhile, Namibia's Land Reform Minister Utoni Nuchoma has called on resettled farmers in the Olchozo Njuba region to start farming productively. Nuchoma made this call while addressing resettled farmers during the official opening of the sixth annual Farmers Information Sharing Session. The information sharing day attended by over 100 resettled farmers brings together hired industry experts to present to resettled farmers on different topics on improving animals and crop farming. The Deputy Managing Director 
of the International Monetary Fund, Daozhang, has called on Botswana to fast-track coming up with and swiftly implementing a completely new growth model to transform the country's economy before it is weighed down by increasing external shocks and stagnant domestic growth rate. Zhang was speaking at a workshop on economic diversification held in conjunction with the Bank of Botswana in Kasane this past weekend. Zhang noted Botswana's success story from one of the poorest countries in the world before independence to one of the most celebrated rapid economic growths. Tanzania has admitted it is aware of unscrupulous traders importing banned plastic carrier bags into the country, warning that they will soon face the full force of the law. The Minister of State in the Vice President's office, Musa Zungu, says that the state has discovered a network of traders who collude with their foreign counterparts to smuggle the bags into the country. Zungu says that the traders were importing substandard carrier bags that were polluting the environment. Besides promoting illegal and unfair competition with local industries, the U.S. technology giant Apple has warned that it will not achieve its forecast revenues for this financial quarter because of the coronavirus outbreak. Both the production and demand have been affected in China, the world's biggest market for smartphones. The BBC's Zoe Thomas reports. This is a problem we're probably going to expect to see from multiple companies because a number of stores have had to close down because of the coronavirus. Apple has closed all of its stores in China, so it's not selling as many iPhones. At the same time, it's not making as many iPhones or any of its products because the factories there have been very slow to open, which means it's not going to be making as many to sell in other markets. So it's kind of a, a dual hit. Apple's the first company to come out and say this isn't going to be good for them, but they're certainly not going to be the last. A number of companies are going to be impacted by this slowdown from the coronavirus. The US dollar is trading at 361.84 Nigerian Nara, 10.82 Botswana Pula, 99.71 Kenyan Shilling, and 14.66 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 430 Brazilian roll. 63.40 Russian ruble, 71.29 Indian rupee, 6.98 Chinese yuan and 14.92 to the South African rand. 76 pence to the British pound, 92 cents to the euro. Gold 1,000, $586, platinum now $71 pounds. The price of brand crude oil is at $75.05 a barrel. This is Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Neto Chimani. Thank you, Lulu. From the sports desk, a very good morning. Starting off with cricket news. 
The Women's T20 World Cup begins this week in Australia, and it could be the most competitive tournament yet, according to the host skipper Meg Lenning. Defending champions Australia are the favourites to lift the trophy, boasting home advantage and the best women's team in world cricket. But England and India could push them in a competition that sees Thailand playing at the elite level for the first time. The final takes place on March the 8th at the 100,000 capacity. City MCG, where organizers are hoping to break attendance records for a women's sporting event. Oh, there's no doubt that the, the quality of cricket over the last few years, especially, has, has increased all the time, and there's a number of, of world class sides. And on any day, any team can win. And um, we certainly weren't surprised at how close the tri series was. Um, England and India are two world class teams who we've played a lot um, and understand that they're, they're very good. So, um, you know, World Cups, every, every team starts on, the, on zero points, and um, on any day, you know, anything can happen. So, uh, you know, we're very aware of what that looks like and, and we know that we need to play extremely well to, to win each game that we play. So it's a great challenge. I think it's only a good thing for the women's game worldwide that there are a number of teams who can compete and um, who could win this World Cup. So it's going to be really exciting. South African men's national cricket coach Mark Boucher has said A.B. de Villiers will be in contention for a spot in the 11 during the T20 World Cup in Australia later this year, provided he makes himself available for selection. De Villiers had announced his retirement from international cricket in May 2018. Since then, however, there has been speculation about his return to the side, especially last year before the Cricket World Cup 2019. With the T20 World Cup in Australia a little over eight months away, there is talk once again of De Villiers' potential return, and Boucher says he would have no qualms selecting the batsman, provided he is ready and willing to play. He's a discussion in the media and in the public. Uh, there's no discussion for me. Um, you know, I've, I've had chats with him. Um, we'll probably learn pretty soon uh, what's going to happen with, with AB. Uh, but I've, like I've said from day one when I took over, um, if we're going to a World Cup, I'd like to have our best players here. So if AB's in, is in good form um, and, and he's raring to go and he makes himself available for the time that, that we've asked him to be available, then you know, if, if he's the best man for the job, then, then he must go. It's not about egos or anything like that. It's about sending your best team to, to the World Cup to, to try and win, win a competition. If De Villiers returned to the national team, certain players who were used during the series loss to England and against Australia in the coming few days are going to miss out. We've got a couple of players that, that aren't in, in the team at the moment, um, which, which gives opportunities. Um, and, and that's great for, for, for guys coming in. Uh, they get a, a chance to showcase their skills. A couple of questions answered, yes. Um, you know, maybe in a positive way, maybe one or two in a negative way. Um, but uh, at least the questions are answered and you know, I think we're getting a good idea of, of what positions uh, we need to fill um, and, and which players are, are putting their hands up for those spots. And finally in football news. Headed goals from Anthony Martial and captain Harry Maguire and Manchester United had fought a 2 0 win at Toothless Chelsea last night amid more VAR controversy, putting them back in the hunt for a top four English Premier League finish. The VAR system made the headlines once again after two Chelsea efforts were ruled out and England international Maguire escaped a sanction for a kick out at Michi Banchuayi. In a high tempo, it 
offense scrappy. Game Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's United decide to make the most of their chances, while Chelsea, whose form at home has been suspect all season, squandered a string of opportunities. Defeat left Chelsea fourth, a point clear of resurgent rivals Tottenham Hotspur, led by their ex-coach Jose Mourinho. Chelsea host Spurs on Saturday. United, another of Mourinho's old clubs, rose to seventh, three points behind Chelsea. This is Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Etio Chemani. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the summer. South Africa's f- Former president apologizes for controversial apartheid statement and efforts to defuse tension between Uganda and Rwanda continue. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuta Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Mondingobo with a song titled Inganyezi.
Na 